Well, Are there people coming in, or is this really it? Wow. You just turn in, and it's and it's daylight savings too. Right, but they might have said like, eh. There's a lot of eh. Huh. Well, we should tell everybody to like a little bit more. <laughs> but not six <laughs> feet. How do you how do you say that? Everyone's going quite scrumptious. Good morning. Wow. All right. <laughs> Welcome to Three Legs Evangelical Free Church. We're excited that you're here. If you're just coming in, find a seat. A um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, just try and find a seat. There's not many out there. Not, <laughs> not really. All right. Well, we're excited that you're here, and uh, thank you for braving the cold and snow. Um, yeah, super, super excited about that. Thank you for the snow. November 1st. Um, announcements, I've only got one for today. Um, online cross-training is kicking off today at 3.30. Um, we're trying it. It's on Zoom. Um, if you did not get an email link, please email Pastor Tim. Um, you can find his email on the bulletin or on our website. Um, yeah, it's going to be good. We're going to try it, see what happens, and uh, super excited to see you there. And with that, I'm turning it over to the worship team. Would you stand and worship with us this morning?
Good morning. Again, take a seat for a moment. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, for those of you who may not know me. So thank you for joining us this morning, whether you're here in person or you're joining us online. We're, we're glad you're here with us. Um, so This is normally the time of service. We would take offerings. Um, and so if you want to give what we're doing here at the church, you can um, give their baskets or plates from the back on your way out, or um, you can give online. So we, we're thankful for those of you who have been faithfully continuing to give. So thank you for that. If you're visiting, we're not asking you to give. We want this service to be a gift to you. So we're gonna, we're gonna enter a time of prayer here, and like I don't know what's been going through your mind lately. Like, but for me, like the two kind of pressing things have been like the election and the ongoing pandemic. And so I've been just kind of, I've been praying for those things in my life. Like two things that kind of been standing out on what I'm praying for. One, like just for, for right knowledge, for truth to be out there. Like if you're thinking from both sides, it's hard to know like what is right. Like for me, like maybe you have it figured out, but for me, like it's hard to know what is right all the time, what is true. And so just praying a lot for, for truth to prevail, both in politics and in um, how we respond to COVID. Um, and then also like, above that even, like just been a, a prayer for love, right? That like, as there are differences of opinion, as there are different knowledge out there, that we would exist in a way that shows that we love one another, even in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of um, uncertainty, in the midst of trial, that we would love one another well, that we would love our neighbors well, and that we would love one another in the church well. So those are the things I've been praying, that's what I'm going to pray now. So if you'd join me in this time of prayer. Father, we, we come before you just so much seemingly uncertain about the future, whether it's uncertain what the future of our nation's leadership looks like, what the future of our nation politics looks like, or uncertain of what the future holds in terms of how this pandemic gets resolved. Um, and yet, even with that uncertainty, God, we know that you have a certain and a sure and a completed plan for all these things, that your plan is good, that your plan is one that will glorify you, that will be good for your people. So God, I pray that you would just give us an assured confidence of your goodness, your love for us, your sovereignty that will bring about your good purposes for us, even as we wrestle to figure out what it looks like. God, I do pray that we engage with the world around us as we have information coming at it from all sides and sometimes conflicting information that you would give us the ability to discern what is true, that you would give us the ability to discern what is right, what is honoring to you, what is glorifying to you. God, that you would, that truth would prevail, that you would bring about your good purposes. Um, yeah, and that you would just 
Help us to act in accordance with the truth. And God, I do pray that we and I, we love others well, even in the midst of, we may disagree with them on various things, that we would love them well, that we would show unity as your people, even as we disagree, that we would show unity as a nation, even to disagree, God, that we would find ways to love others well, even and especially when we disagree with them, that we would show that we value them as fellow image bearers of you. We would speak lovingly, that we would disagree lovingly, that we would, you would be honored and glorified through how we interact with people around us, even those who disagree with us. God, I do pray that your sovereign hand would guide all that take place in the coming days and weeks and months, that we would see your good hand, that we would be confident of your good hand behind all that take place, even if it means challenges for us personally for a time. God, we pray for our people in the church now who are, who are struggling with various things, whether it's sickness or pain or whatever it may be, God, that you would be with the people in the church who need an extra sense of your goodness, that you would pour out your grace on them, that you would give them peace and endurance to face the trial before them. God, we do celebrate your goodness to us, that we know we live in a broken and a fallen world, and yet you entered into that world in Jesus, that we could be forgiven of our sins and have a redeemed and right relationship with you. God, we thank you and we praise you that you sent Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, for what you've done for us on the cross. And I pray that in the midst of everything else, in the midst of living in a fallen and a broken world, we would live confident of what you've done for us. We would live to spread the good news of what you've done to others, to see your kingdom advance. That you would be glorified through our lives and through all that takes place. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you stand as we continue to worship this morning?
Lord, we thank you that you are the King of Kings. We thank you for your sovereignty um, and that we can count on you no matter what, Lord. Um, we thank you that you, you will make a way even when there seems to be no way. Um, we just, we thank you that you are in control no matter what happens, that you have gone before all of it, Lord. We praise you for who you are, Lord, and what you've done. You are here. 
never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't feel it, you're working. You never stop, you never stop working. You never stop, you never stop working. You praise you that you are indeed good, that even when we don't feel it, we don't see it, that you are at work. And I pray that we will live in light of that truth, that we will be confident that you're at work even when we don't feel it, we don't see it. pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So today, we're going to kick off our first series through the book of Luke. So, I shared last week, but if you missed it, like, we're going to work our way through the entire book of Luke here over the next while. But we're going to, instead of just plowing through the whole book of Luke in one long, unending stretch of sermon after sermon, we're going to break Luke into again, eight different series. And so each series will be eight to twelve weeks, and then in between each series we'll do a different passage of scripture. Right, today, today we're going to kick off right, the first series in Luke. So this is Sermon 1 of Series 1. And so today we're going to start with Luke's kind of introduction to his gospel. And this will kind of carry us through, through Christmas, we'll, we'll hit Luke's telling of the birth narrative at Christmas time. And then we'll end this series, series one, January 3rd, when we look at Luke's account of the 12-year-old boy Jesus in the temple. Right? So let's first here's a kind of take us through all the way through Jesus' childhood years. So the book of Luke is kind of one big biography, as it were, of Jesus, or as Luke calls it in his, his book, like a narrative of the things accomplished among us, right? what Jesus has done. And so I really enjoy reading biographies. So I'll read biographies of both well-known people and not-so-well-known people. But I always find it, find it interesting when I'm reading a biography of a well-known figure to see how 
the biographer handled the fact that many other biographies have already been written about that person. So for example, like, I'm really intrigued by Winston Churchill. And there's like no shortage of biographies about Churchill, including like an eight-volume, 8,600-page set by a guy named Martin Gilbert. And there's another three-volume, 3,000-page set by William Manchester. Right? And so those books in existence, if I was a historian, if I was a biographer, and I wanted to write a biography, like, there's no way I'd write a biography of Churchill. Right? Like, like, what would be the point? Like, surely there's nothing left to be said about Churchill that one of those guys hadn't said in those combined 11,000 whatever pages. And yet, year after year after year, more books about Churchill keep getting published. And in fact, earlier this year, I read a book by one of my favorite historian authors, Eric Larson, called The Splendid and the Vile. Like, which I read and I enjoyed and I learned from, even though I've already read the three-volume biography by Manchester. And the reason I was able to learn from that book and to enjoy it was that, like, despite having read other biographies, like, The Splendid and the Vile had a very specific focus. In the introduction to that book, Eric Larson, the author, writes, What followed is by no means a definitive account of Churchill's life. Other authors have achieved that end. I focused on Churchill's first year as prime minister, which coincided with the German air campaign as it evolved from sporadic, seemingly aimless raids to a full-on assault against the city of London. Mine is a more intimate account that delves into how Churchill and his circle went about surviving on a daily basis. Right? That book is, ends up being like a 600-page book. Right? So like, Larson spends 600 pages focusing on one year of Churchill's life, the year of kind of the German bombing of London. And he does that because like, he knows that if you're going to write a biography about somebody who's well-known, you need to bring some kind of unique focus to the table. You can't just repeat the same things that have already been said. You need to do something to make your writing stand out from the others that are out there. And that's what we see with Luke. So Luke writes this account of the things that have been accomplished, but he's well aware that he's not the first person to tell this story. In fact, like the very first thing he says in the book is, many, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So he's, he's aware that many people have already tried to tell the story of Jesus. But he goes on to say, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account. Right? So Luke's well aware that other people have already undertaken to tell the story of Jesus' life. Right? It seems likely, for example, that Luke had access to Mark's gospel when he writes his, and there are others, non-biblical authors, who already probably compiled the events of Jesus' life. And yet... Luke still found that it was important to write his own version of the events. And so we can make the assumption then that Luke felt like he had some unique perspective to bring to the table, which is why he felt the need to write down his own version. That he has something to say about Jesus' life and ministry that hadn't yet been said. And if we compare Luke to the other Gospels, we see that true. 
There's a significant amount of content in Luke's Gospel that's only found in Luke. In fact, if you were just to start listing some of the most famous stories about Jesus, it wouldn't take you long to start listing things that are only found in Luke. So, for example, in a couple of weeks, many of you will start decorating for Christmas. Based on the weather, you could probably start today. Like, so you're going to start decorating for Christmas, and probably one of the things you're going to set up is a nativity scene, right? Because you can hardly be a Christian and decorate for Christmas and not have a nativity scene, right? Like, it's essential. And so, when you set up that nativity scene, one of the things you're going to set up is probably shepherds. And how do we know there are shepherds at Jesus' birth? Only because of Luke. Or, like, two of Jesus' most famous parables, right? The Good Samaritan and the prodigal son, only found in Luke. There's a lot of things we'd be missing if not for the Gospel of Luke. And if you start to think about all the things that Luke includes that other people don't, a theme starts to emerge. And that theme is that Luke tells stories of people who are downtrodden and outcast. The shepherds that Luke mentions who Luke includes in the birth narrative, right? they're kind of the bottom rung of Jewish culture. Right? The prodigal son, like, he was so ostracized that he, like, from Jewish culture, that he like, worked with pigs, right? which made him even more outsider. He was outsider and downcast. Right? And then like, there's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Like, the Samaritans like, were the sworn enemy of the Jewish people. Beyond outsiders. They're like enemy of enemy to the Jewish people. And Luke is the only gospel who shares the parable where the Samaritan is a hero. Like all that to say, like Luke has a very clear purpose in writing his gospel. And that is that Luke is writing because he wants his audience to be certain that the good news of Jesus is for everyone. Not just for a certain group, not just for a certain social status, not just for a certain whatever. Like, the gospel of Jesus is for everyone. And we start to see that in Luke's introduction. So the first four verses of Luke say this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who, from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So in verses 1 and 2, he acknowledges, as we said, that other people have already sought to compile a narrative of Jesus' life. But then the rest of the passage, he goes on to give us three things that will make his gospel unique. These are three qualities that will kind of tell us why Luke decided to write, even though other accounts already existed. And the first of those things is his sources. And Luke is unique among the gospel writers in that he is neither an eyewitness to Jesus, nor is he the direct recipient of an eyewitness report. So, Matthew and John, when they write their Gospels, right, they're eyewitnesses, they're apostles who are walking with Jesus day after day for three years. And so their account that we find in Matthew and John are largely their personal recollections of what Jesus did. Right, they may have 
done some fact checking, some cross referencing to make sure they didn't get anything wrong. But by and large, their accounts are their own personal remembrances of what Jesus did. Mark wasn't an apostle, but like he was Peter's assistant and writer, and so he like worked very closely with Peter and largely, we think, just wrote down Peter's recollections of what happened. But Luke is different. Luke's not an eyewitness. He spent some time working closely with Paul, but Paul's not an eyewitness either. So Luke doesn't have like one eyewitness that he can draw on to tell this story. And he acknowledges in verse 2 that there have already been some eyewitness accounts passed down. But he's not content to stop there and just accept those accounts. Instead, in verse 3 we read, With this in mind, since I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke's not content to rely on other people's account of Jesus' life. Instead, he went and carefully investigated the claims for himself. And because of this, we get a lot of information that the other Gospels don't tell us. We already shared some of the stories Luke says, but in total, right, like 30% of what we find in Luke is found nowhere else. Like 30% is a pretty good chunk of what we find. Right? So Luke is our only source for information about John the Baptist's birth. And he probably got that information because he went and he investigated and he talked to John's family. Right? If we get more information about Jesus' birth in Luke than anywhere else, probably because he went and he talked and investigated and talked to Luke or Jesus' family and brothers and his mom and whoever else. Like he went and he investigated. Like Luke put in the time to make sure he got all the information he could and to make sure he got the details right. Because he wanted the person he was writing to, a man named Theophilus, to be certain that what he reported was true. In verse 4, Luke says, I investigated I investigated everything carefully, and I'm writing this because, or so that, you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Like Luke understood that when it comes to the big questions of life, like it's worth doing the work to make sure you have the details right. To make sure you're certain of your facts. And Luke took the time to make sure he had a fact straight before he passed on his information to Theophilus. What that means for us, then, is that as we make our way through this book over the next months and years, we can be confident that Luke got his information correct. And even though like, Luke addressed his gospel just to Theophilus, right, it's clear that Luke had a wider audience in mind, that he knew more people beyond Theophilus were going to read this passage. And so when he says his motivation for investigating is so that we can be certain, right? that's it so for everyone who reads this book, including us. He wants us to be certain that what he says is true. He wants us to be certain that, what, that we would know for sure the truth of what we've been taught about Jesus. Right? That ultimately is Luke's goal in writing this book. But here's what I find like, most interesting about the fact that Luke went and investigated stories about Jesus. Because it seems like when Luke started this investigation, 
he was probably already a Christian. Like, in fact, he probably already did much of his investigating while he was traveling with Paul in some of the missionary journeys we read about in Acts. So Luke's already familiar with the claims of Christianity, yet he still investigates. Likewise, Luke indicates that like Theophilus, who he's writing to, is already familiar with the Christian story. He said that Theophilus has already been taught the things that are being investigated. In fact, that word translated taught is katecheo in Greek, right? Which is the root word for our word catechism. Now, depending on your background, you may have a negative connotation with catechism, right? But, like, among early Christians, it just meant a formal set of teachings that new converts would receive. So Theophilus has already been taught those things. He's already been in the word catechized. And he still thought it was worth investigating the claims investigated further. So here's the point. Like a lot of times, we want to encourage people who are not Christians to investigate carefully the claims of Christianity. And we should. But what we learn from Luke and from Theophilus is that people already inside the church, people who are already Christians, should also be encouraged to investigate the claims of Christianity. That's the mark of something that is true. That it will stand up to close examination. Therefore, when we have doubts and questions, our response should not be to try to bury those doubts because we're a little bit worried about what will happen if we really look into them. But we should, we should seek answers to those doubts and those questions, confident that if Christianity is true, it will stand up to our questions and our investigations. Likewise, like when our kids or our friends come to us with questions, like our reaction should not be to try to suppress those questions, but to encourage them to investigate their questions and walk with them through the investigation process the way Luke did with Theophilus. So the first thing that makes Luke's gospel unique is his sources. And the second thing that makes his gospel unique is his structure. In verse 3 again we read, With this in mind, since I myself carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Luke goes out of his way to mention that his account will be orderly. And when I first read that, like, I remember assuming that Luke meant, meant like, oh, like his account is in chronological order. But as you read through the book, it's clear that that's not the case. For example, in Luke 4, like, Luke records Jesus' kind of teaching at the synagogue in Nazareth, and that's Jesus' kind of first public teaching in the book of Luke. It kind of launches his ministry in the book of Luke. But then in that same story, the crowd says, well, we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So their assumption is that Judith had already been in Capernaum. But then Luke put the Capernaum stories after this story. Which means that instead of telling his stories in chronological order, Luke intentionally rearranges the order of his story, to better communicate the points that he's trying to get across. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all kind of follow the same general outline. They start with Jesus' ministry starting in the north, 
up in Galilee, then he starts traveling toward Jerusalem, and then he ends in Jerusalem where he's ultimately crucified and resurrected. So they all follow that same basic outline. But within, within that basic outline, Luke seems to have the most intentional order and structure to his book. So as we get into the book, we'll see lots of examples of how Luke kind of groups stories together and orders stories in an intentional way to kind of drive his point home. But for now, it's enough to know that like, Luke has been thoughtful right, about the way that he has ordered his gospel. And for the same reason, he investigated things in the first place in order that we may have certainty. The way Luke arranges his gospel is intended to help us better understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Which means there's great value in reading Luke, if not all at once, then at least in big chunks. But a lot of times, we use devotionals or we use Bible reading plans. They'll have us read maybe like one, maybe two chapters at a time. And that can be valuable. But when you only read small sections of a book at a time, it can be easy to miss the bigger picture of what the author is intentionally trying to communicate through how he put the book together. So my encouragement for you then is like, as we make our way through this book, through the book of Luke, like find some time to read big chunks of Luke all at once. And so depending on your translation, there's about 25,000 words in Luke. So average reading rate is about 250 words a minute for adults, which means, like, depending on how fast you read, it's about 100 minutes to read the book of Luke cover to cover. So that means if you read 20 minutes a day, like you can read the whole book in five days. If you did that, I think you'd get a better sense of the way that Luke has intentionally structured his gospel. I think it'll help you make connections about who Jesus is and what he has done that you might otherwise miss if you're only reading it in small sections. And if reading that long is a challenge for you, you can find lots of good audio versions of the Bible online. You can you just search the Gospel of Luke, Luke read aloud on YouTube. Like BibleGateway.com has an audio Bible feature. Like there's ways to listen to or read the book of Luke in big chunks. Right. So however you do it, I'd encourage you to take some time in the days ahead to read through Luke in big chunks and see what God has to reveal to you through Luke's careful structure. And so Luke's gospel is unique because of his sources, because of his structure, and then finally, it's unique because of his empathy. So as we said at the very beginning, Luke is concerned throughout the book to tell stories and to highlight people who are outcast, who are downtrodden, People who don't quite fit in. And one of the reasons Luke is so concerned for those people has to do with who he is and who he's writing to. For one thing, Luke is the only Gentile author in the Bible. And he probably writes this book around in the mid-60s AD, which is a time when the church is still trying to, trying to figure out and understand what it looks like for these Gentile believers to integrate into a kind of originally Jewish faith. And there's some, there's some tension between the Jews and the Gentiles still at this time. At that time, like, Christians viewed themselves not as a new religion altogether, but as a, as a sect within 
the Jewish faith. There's a lot of debate, a lot of struggle about what it looks like for Gentiles to come into that faith. Faith. Perhaps the most vivid example of this is found in Galatians 2, where Paul confronts Peter over his hypocrisy on these issues. Starting in verse 11 of Galatians 2, we read, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow follow Jewish customs? All that to say, at this point in church history, there's still a lot of tension between Jews and Gentiles, even within the church. And you get a sense that being a Gentile convert in those days was not easy and was not comfortable. And that's where Luke finds himself. Luke, as a Gentile, is well aware that he is not always fully welcome, depending on who he's talking to, even within the church. He feels like an outcast. And because of that, he's able to write with great empathy for those who don't quite fit in. And that makes him the ideal person then to write to Theophilus, who is also an outsider, albeit in a different kind of way. We don't know a lot about who Theophilus is, other than that Luke dedicated this book and the book of Acts to him. But there are a couple things we can figure out that we can deduce. Theophilus is a Greek name. It means lover of God. And because of his name's meaning, like some people speculated that he was this invented person that Luke was writing to, he kind of who just represented everyone who loves God. However, like, Theophilus was a pretty common name at that time. So it seems more likely that he was a real person. And the fact that Luke calls him most excellent Theophilus, most excellent indicates that he was probably a Roman official of some rank and status. One common theory is that Theophilus was Luke's like, literary patron, that he, would, he was the one who paid Luke's expenses as he went and did all this investigating and this writing. Right? We don't know that for sure, but... It's a possibility. In any case, like Theophilus was like probably a high-ranking Gentile Roman official who was seeking to join a faith made up predominantly of working-class Jews who worship a man who was killed in part by high-ranking Roman officials. You can understand why Theophilus would not feel super welcomed into this new faith. Like, Theophilus was powerful and successful in the world's eyes. But he likely felt like an outsider if he stepped into faith in Jesus and into the church. So Luke writes to him to help him be certain of the things that he was taught. And I think Theophilus needs, he needs, love, he needs certainty on two levels. The obvious level that we first think of is that he needs 
certainty, the things that Luke writes, the things about Jesus are true. He needs to be certain that the claims made about Jesus really did happen. That Jesus really did the, the miracles that were attributed to him. That Jesus really did teach the things that people said that he taught. That Jesus really was crucified, buried, and rose from the dead. But I think even more importantly than having certainty that the facts themselves are true, Theophilus needed certainty that those facts applied to him. That even though he was a high-ranking Roman, the salvation that Jesus offered is just as available to him as it is to working-class Jews. That's the certainty that Theophilus needed. That's one thing, right? To believe the fact about Jesus' life in the abstract, or believe it comes like a head knowledge. But it's an altogether different and more important thing to believe and to know that what Jesus did can apply to you. That because of Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, that you can be forgiven of your sins and be restored to a right relationship with God by placing your faith and your trust in Jesus. And that ultimately is the message of Luke's gospel. That no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter your background, no matter your social status, no matter what, the gospel is for you. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that the gospel is for us, that what Jesus did on the cross was not just to forgive people with a certain background. It was not just to forgive people with a certain social status. It was not just to forgive people who reached a certain moral level on their own. But that the gospel of Jesus and what he accomplished for us on the cross is for everyone, including us. I pray that we would we would feel and we would believe the truth of that. That there's anyone watching, or listening, or who's here who hasn't trusted, hasn't believed that they can be forgiven of their sins because of what Jesus did, that they would turn and repent of their sins, they would trust in Jesus. God, for us, as we are reminded of what Jesus did for us, I pray that it would compel us, to motivate us, to live lives that bring you honor, that bring you glory. Not because they somehow add or contribute to our own salvation, but out of an overflowing heart of thanks for what you've done for us in Jesus, and out of a desire to bring you glory. God, thank you for this book of Luke. Thank you for the way you worked in Luke to have him investigate these things and to record what all of what Jesus did. Thank you that you worked through different Bible authors in different ways to bring us all, bring them all together into one book that we can know you through your word.
pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we prepare to leave here, first I'd invite you back at 10.30. If you grab a cup of coffee, we'll come back and we'll discuss the sermon online. You can come back here, join us in here, or as Ian said earlier, if you're watching online, you want to join us at 3.30 um, via Zoom. We have, we have a link in your email. If you don't have that, you can email me. I'll send it your way. But in either case, I'd enjoy just having the chance to discuss more of what this sermon means, what this passage means for us in our own day-to-day lives. And now as we go, I pray that you would go just confident in what Jesus has done for you and that what Jesus has done applies to you. Go in peace. You're dismissed. So, and I'm going to do a little interjection here before I'm going to go off script a little. Before we all go, I just want to give a shout out to all of our student athletes who finished up their fall season. So in here we have Sam who played soccer. Our soccer team finished conference champs this year. Good job, Sam. Did a good job at regionals. We have Eli over on the other side, cross country. He took six at conference, all conference over there. And then we have Carly and Jess um, on our volleyball team. The volleyball team made it all the way to sectional finals last night. Oh, it's such a good game. So I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to all of our athletes. And we're thankful that they all got a season this year because it's been kind of awful with COVID, but they did it and we were just celebrating their successes. So there you go.